Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances, the podcast where we take you down the rabbit hole into the fantastic world of the strange, the paranormal, and the unknown. I'm Morgan Knudsen. And I'm Mike Brown. It's time to dim the lights and settle in. Come along with us on this week's adventure. Holy smokes. Yeah. More UFOs, and I love it. Yeah, this, I think, is probably one of the most unique stories I have heard in a really long time. And mm-hmm. when this came to my attention through the amazing Dr. Dean Bertram, uh, who we've had on before talking about the UAP hearings and right. all of that kind of a thing. And he said, you guys have to read this book. And I was like, okay, no problem. And there's very few people that have blown my mind, like completely blown my mind and really made me rethink the world. And this one did it. We're going to be talking to Chris Albeck. And Chris is the author of a book called Saucers, Tracing the Origins of Disc-Shaped UFOs. And it's really interesting how he talks about this. And we'll get into it with his conversation. But like, why does the term flying saucer appear everywhere? Yeah. Why is that a thing? Is that what people were seeing? Chris says maybe not. It's super interesting. And what I find so incredible about this subject is it it not only applies to UFOs, but this applies, I think, to every topic that we think we know mm-hmm. about the world. You know, what is it that we actually know? How much of it is shaped by other people's opinions, by the media, by our environment, our culture, all of those things? And right. that is what I find very interesting about this. I agree. And Chris, he has a bit of a pedigree. He did a book with uh, one of the most famous ufologists, Jacques Vallée. Yeah. Another book called Wonders in the Sky. And uh, Jacques Vallée, for those who don't know, uh, there's a French character in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and it's played by the famous director Francois Truffaut, who was a uh, friend of Steven Spielberg. Well, his, that character is based on Jacques Vallée. So, you know, yeah. it's it's really cool that we're uh, a couple of degrees of separation from from that, uh, you know, close encounters even. <laughs> totally, totally. Because, I mean, if you don't know the story, I, I think of, of, you know, UFOs or you're not incredibly you know into that subject or whatever. Most people have seen Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. You know, it's such a iconic film. And if you haven't seen yeah. it, go watch it. I'm not kidding. Yeah. I watch it at least once a year. I love it. It's it's brilliant. It's it's yeah. brilliant. And it was so uh, just paradigm shifting when it came out that it's it's a must, I think it's a must see. I mean, it, it's definitely about it's about the people. It's about our relationship with with these things. It's really really neat. Well, let's talk to Chris. I'm ready. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, it is so good to start this conversation. Uh, you know, like we were just talking about 
off off air is that there's so much out there and so much conflicting information and so many things that are constantly especially in the last year or so pouring out of the media uh chris it is really good to have you here today thank you so much for for coming and and talking about this thank you for having me it's a pleasure dean bertram who is a, a mutual friend of ours i mean he uh, was was so fascinated with your work, and, and we knew we had to to talk to you too because, it, I mean, your your books are are so interesting, and uh, I love that you've dug further. I think than just the surface level of this strange topic. Uh, what was it about this question that made you write a book on it? This this idea of tracing the origins back uh, as far as you have. Okay, well, um, of course, we can talk about any of the nine or ten books that I've published yeah, since right. I started. True. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most of them have to do with the history of the topic, um, because, of course, most of us know about what's happened since 1947, since mm -hmm. June the 24th, 1947, when, when Kenneth Arnold saw his nine mysterious objects flying over Mount Ray, uh, Rainier. Uh, but what happened before that? That's the interesting thing, because, of course, it's been a media circus uh, since that date. Uh, every Everyone and their grandmother knows about UFOs, flying saucers, little greys, um, and so on and so forth. So the important thing is to look back at a time before all of these subjects became mainstream before this this imagery had had a ta a chance to settle in in the collective consciousness as it were of society because of course if you can find patterns in the data um, before 1947, uh, it's more likely that it's indicative of uh, strange phenomena, mm -hmm. or at least, um, sure. I mean, because there, there would have been much less contamination, cross-contamination between media outlets, because, of course, um, particularly on a, on, on a global scale, if you find a story about a, a weird light in the sky with a red cross in it in the center of Africa, for example, uh, and then you find the same thing in China and in, in New York, it's very unlikely that each of those locations would have known about each other. And it's, it's more probable that you'll you know, that there's actually something there or they, that they actually saw something. So I've always been interested in the in the in the ancient history uh, side of this, um, in the folklore, because really folklore half the time is just um, our own interpretation of things that we that we that we've seen that we haven't been able to understand um, and how we've expressed it using archetypal imagery or, or poetical ideas or, or just in, you know, uh, the theological language, too. This is kind of what you tackled in your book, Wonders in the Sky with Jacques Vallée, is that correct? Yeah, well, in Wonders in the Sky, um, that was a... Um, that was a different time in my life, mm -hmm. but I still, of course, support the, the whole notion behind that book. Um, we tried to find 500 interesting, good cases, uh, UFO cases, uh, and put them together chronologically. And um, we do say in the introduction that that book is basically just a draft. It's a first attempt to to rebuild our lost uh, UFO past, mm -hmm. and um, and we would need to rewrite it at some point, uh, which we did. Um, a few years later, we we made a, a different version. We got rid of lots of cases. We added some new ones. We've corrected errors, uh, and it's still a work in progress, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I want to bring out my own version. Uh, probably uh, in the first few months of uh, 2024. Hmm. Um, and it's the, the idea is to see if we can identify patterns in the data. If the ancient Greeks, for example, saw the same thing as the Egyptians or the Romans or in medieval times, and see if that has any, any resemblance to what people have seen in the 20th and 21st centuries. So, and of course, we, we do find um, 
we we do find similarities. We do find patterns, uh, and then there are some areas um, which. Well, some some aspects which have surprised us, for example, the complete lack of flying saucer-shaped objects um, before uh, the 20th century, for example. It's um, and that 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 was the the basis for my my most recent book on 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 flying saucers, which is simply called Saucers. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to explore that problem. So by looking back at history, um, we can. Not only it doesn't only help us interpret what's going on today, it also serves as a kind of warning too. Because if if we know that something had a fictional origin, and today we find exactly the same thing in newspapers, on TV, and and so on, um, what does that mean? It probably means that it's equally fictional today, whatever aspect of the phenomenon. Uh, that is hmm. yeah that's so so interesting that, that you brought that aspect of it up because that's one thing mike that you and i have talked about so many times yep. on on this show and that we've we've traced back in, in so many subject matters is is that role of people's belief and what that belief plays and it plays into these these stories and like you were saying chris is the, the idea of uh the the folklore aspect of this as well um it, it's just it seems to be something that you we can't escape like no matter what subject matter that we're in this this role of of belief that uh that that seems to play in especially into the ufo the, the ufo community which is, is oddly enough something that i hadn't you know a, a year or two ago really connected with it but but i, I think you just bring up a really good point there well, I mean, there's folklore in every single academic um, branch of science and history, geography, sure. in every in every area. If you, if you look at geography, um, of course, there are very good maps, and there are countries, and there are um, um, freeways and and ships exploring the world. But then there are also maps of places that that have never existed mm -hmm. there are there are stories and legends of locations that were just invented by people that were just um fruit of somebody's imagination so even in the world of geography which we can all touch and and travel around uh there's there's folklore there and we have to bear that in mind i think it's important in the world of ufos where very little has been established as true um, that we need to not fall into the trap of believing any old thing. Right. Yeah. And yeah. as we as we question those things, um, it might be painful to some people because um, that's that's one of the reasons I don't have too many friends in this field. <laughs> but, um, I mean, fair enough. People people respect what I'm doing. Uh, they buy my books. They read it. They learn a lot. It makes them think. But then I question things that they've probably held dear for for decades, and they don't mm -hmm. want to let go of. And um, yeah. you know that's the thing. As I said in in the in the latest book uh, that I've that I've uh, published uh, called Sources, um, I, I question the the whole um, existence of disc-shaped craft because uh, if you look at modern databases uh, or even older databases um, the number of sightings of disc-shaped objects saucer-shaped objects is incredibly small we're talking about a tiny fraction in fact um, we're looking at two percent one percent four percent five percent and that's all um, 95 to 99 percent of cases have nothing to do with discs but then it's the disc that we use to decorate um, books and posters and jewelry and stickers, and it's what the Bart Simpson's going to encounter right, on his yeah. adventures. And so the disc has become synonymous with UFOs, uh, but it's it's paradoxical because really um, discs are incredibly underrepresented in in the data. It's mainly about spheres and triangles and mm -hmm. rectangles and any shape under the sun except discs. So what I like to do is to question everything. Sure. 
I think that's the healthy yeah, I, way to look at everything, really. I mean, especially if you're uh, exploring something that you're not really sure even exists, the best, the best thing to do is to question everything that you learn or see. Yeah, and I, the you, bringing up the idea of of the saucers and and just that that tiny percentage, um, you you talk a lot about Kenneth Arnold in in saucers and uh, his his experience. And for for the audience, he was a an aviator. Uh, and in June 1947, he ended up seeing these these crafts. And he was really, I, I think, one of the first people to talk about the idea that uh, these this was almost like a half half moon pie shaped half a pie mm-hmm. dish kind of uh, kind of shape uh, but do you th- that seemed to be the kickoff for some of this stuff is 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 that right yeah it's a lot more complex than than what people believe and what i've done with this with this book is um i've well well the first thing i did i decided to fill it with pictures and diagrams illustrations and fun things and comical looking things but because um people don't like reading about history right. and uh, people who are into ufos they, they 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 don't want to have to do any hard work to get at the information half the time so what i what i did was to make a book that's quite entertaining to read um but then um what i've done is to piece together arnold's uh, own statements about what he saw uh he the first ever adjective he used to describe the shape of the objects was somewhat bat-shaped. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing he said. Um, he didn't say that they were discs. He didn't say that they looked like saucers. He said they were somewhat bat-shaped. And the reason why he chose uh, the word bat was because at that time, in the in the mid to late 40s, oh, even earlier too, um, the most popular... Uh, aircraft, uh, because at that time people people were actually fascinated by by aviation. But I mean, just normal people in the street, uh, farmers and and shopkeepers and barmen were interested in 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 the latest uh, technological developments in the world of aviation. So sure. there was celebrity there was celebrity aircraft um, which appeared in in newspapers mm-hmm. in the same way that uh, the Kada- the Kardashians might think right. today. Yeah, and um, so. Uh, uh, at that time, people were comparing a craft called the Flying Wing, uh, an airplane designed by by Northrop, um, the engineers, uh, originally to be used in, in World War II, but it was never deployed. They were comparing it with bats. And the, the word bat was strongly associated with with these, uh, with these aircraft that looked boomerang-shaped. So when, when Kenneth Arnold told reporters that he had seen a bat-shaped object or a bat well he said somewhat bat-shaped uh, he was he had that in mind he was talking about um, this single-winged uh, craft and then when he came to talk about it in in the next few interviews he said it looked like a half moon but then it seems that he was implying a crescent. Uh, he was talking about uh, half a plate, which is a semicircular. But then the the famous picture that he made in in 1950, an airbrush drawing that uh, today uh, his daughter Kim Arnold has at home, um, shows very much a, a crescent-shaped uh, object. So. For the, at, at the beginning, he didn't understand why everybody was reporting saucer shapes because that's not what he had seen. But right. he had, but he had obviously triggered the craze. So he was really confused about what was going on. It is. It is confusing. What What do you make of it? Was this something that the the media just designed and kind of threw in there? Like, where was this turning point? Yeah, so um, about 20 years ago, I was doing um, uh, some deep research into the origin of the expression flying saucer. And I discovered that the expression had been invented around the year 1881. It, oh, wow. it, wasn't, it wasn't invented in 1947. It was 60 years old by then, more than 60 years old. And, um, well... That's on the, on, on the one hand, and I'll return to that point. But 
what happened was that uh, William Beckett, the the journalist who interviewed Arnold at length at the Pendleton Hotel, um, he he got the the adjective uh, somewhat bat shaped, and that went into his original article. Uh, Arnold also said that they were they were flat like pipe uh, pans and um, like saucers. But at that time, as flat as a saucer was the same as saying as as flat as a pancake today. Right. It doesn't imply that something's round. It just means it's very flat. And so in the book, I actually give several examples of people at that time using the expression as flat as a saucer, as flat as a pie plate. But uh, even referring to um, the, the collar of a woman's coat or, um, I don't know, a face or feet, because it, it didn't necessarily mean disc shaped. So um, what happened was that uh, this journalist mentioned the the flat as a saucer and so on in his article uh, and he also wrote somewhat bat shaped but when he made a version of this article for the associated press which would mean that it would appear in all of the newspapers all across the country right. he forgot to use the adjective somewhat bat shaped he forgot or he omitted it or he didn't want to write it or I, I don't know. So what that meant was that everybody in the country received a version of that interview, a version of that article that omitted the only shape expression that Kenneth Arnold had used, somewhat bat shaped, and they only visualized saucers and pie pans. So that was where the idea of flat circular UFOs uh, came from. However, the, the important point to return to this, to the fact that flying saucer was an expression invented in the, in the 1880s, this was an expression um, uh, that was created to describe uh, clay pigeons um, used in mm -hmm. trap shooting and skeet. Because uh, although these days we've totally forgotten, um, for the first few decades of the 20th century, skeet and trap shooting were incredibly important sports in North America, up there with tennis and golf and everything else. They were really, really important sports. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands and possibly millions of people played these sports for several decades. And they, they had used the expression flying saucer to describe these clay targets for generations. So when in 1947, um, journalists had heard about this guy, Kenneth Arnold, who'd seen things that were like uh, pie pans or, or saucers, they all independently invented the expression flying saucer but they, they just borrowed it from from the vocabulary that was already that already existed so we can't really say that anybody invented the word the, the expression flying saucer to describe arnold's ufos it was just already a part of the a part of the language and that's how it spread so quickly because everyone knew what a flying saucer looked like it was used in in trap shooting but then if i can just say there's <laughs> one last piece of the puzzle which is fascinating too um in the mid 1940s, um, the sport was abandoned uh, officially because the government and the military wanted to dedicate all ammunition and weapons that had been used in this sport um, to the war effort uh, for, for World War II. So um, nobody could 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 use uh, bullets and, and, and rifles and things uh, for trap shooting. They were all given to the military, but the military said, well, we're going to use, we're going to hire the best marksmen uh, who've been firing at these clay pigeons or flying saucers for, for years to train our own gunners. So they're ready to fight the Nazis flying, flying over Europe or over mm -hmm. Germany. And so for several years, the, Amer the American military used the expression flying saucer and used it in their training programs uh, to train their own, their own soldiers to fight, the, to fight the Nazis and so on. And in newspapers just a couple of years before Kenneth Arnold's sighting, the, uh, the military was saying, well, we're using flying saucers to train our best men and curiously, um, the man in charge was a guy called General Arnold. 
And so in the space of three years, people associated first uh, General Arnold with, with the use of flying saucers to train uh, gunners. And then three years later, people associated Kenneth Arnold with his flying saucers and then alien spaceships. So it's a very interesting period in American history that anyone who loves flying saucers or UFOs in general should really know about. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's just it's it's interesting too, you know, as you're telling the story how you you can see how the public was connecting the dots, you know, between even even maybe when they shouldn't have been connecting the dots, but they were connecting these dots and 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 how this this developed. It's so interesting. And then there was in in 1946, I thought this was really interesting as well that in in San Diego, which was and right before Kenneth Arnold sighting there was another object in the sky during a meteor shower and people were describing it as like a bullet shape and with mm -hmm. wings and a vapor trail and whatnot. I thought that was interesting that the, the flying saucer label didn't seem to get strapped to that sighting. Well, exactly, because um, there hadn't been that confusion caused by the journalist who would only use the, 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 the word saucer to describe sure. flatness. Nobody talked about flat UFOs before Kenneth Arnold's sighting. And so, I mean, the, the fact that it's a bullet's interesting, that they described this object flying over San Diego as bullet-shaped, because, I mean, there is this sort of... Um, um, cultural obsession in the United States with bullets right, and yeah. firing guns and so on. So it's it's interesting in that sense, <laughs> yeah. I suppose. But but the fact is that um, that uh, nobody associated that object with with uh, sources, because nobody had even dreamt of the possible. Well, they they had dreamt in fiction, but no, nobody had even tried to design um, a vehicle uh, that was round and flat. That, that flew through the sky um, because, of course, everyone knew that these things had to spin at incredible speeds to remain aloft that, um, I mean, nobody imagined that uh, an, a real alien spaceship would look like that. Sure, yeah. And I mean, even the, uh, you know, the idea of or the, I guess the interest of more futuristic technologies as the the wars coming about and things like I mean that had to have played a big part too the idea that you know they're developing these these new things and you know, this, these ideas are, are running through people's heads like when I mean, we see it in film era at, at that time and you know the day the earth stood still and the you know all these these different movies and and whatever not that that came out that were. Uh, were so impactful to people's imagination. Like, I, it's it's fascinating how the the culture um, is is so is so integrated into you know how people are are envisioning these things. Because we go back, um, like even in, in your book, you were talking about history back as far as far as four hundred BC um, in the the Vedas in India. And the idea of, you know, human souls reaching the moon and all of these amazing things, but they were all, all at that point, all seen as, as these celestial events, you know, the idea of these, these more futuristic things weren't, weren't in play at that point, which I, I thought was really, really interesting how there seems to be almost a line between when, when this started versus how people were interpreting it and even how they were visualizing it back in, in, you know, China and India and, and France and all of these places. Hmm. Well, what I do in, in Alien Artifacts and um, this series of books, uh, I, well, I thought it was going to be three, but it might end up being four because it's such a, a fascinating and, and huge story, the origin of ufology and our belief in visiting extraterrestrials. What I do at the beginning of Alien Artifacts is that I trace our uh, humanity's belief in um, other planets, uh, other civilized planets, um, back to the ancient Greeks. Uh, they had a philosophy uh, uh, called atomism. They believed that the universe was composed of atoms, and this was a long time before microscopes, obviously, and that they, they thought that these swirling atoms probably replicated the same patterns across the universe, and if that were true, then as there are people 
on the on the earth then um, the same atoms would form people on other planets in the universe so the the, the idea of an inhabited planets does go back to the ancient Greeks but the and and in the book I show how how this uh, grew over the centuries and when you get to medieval times uh, it was debated even among uh, the uh, medieval theologians it was a very important uh, topic in fact among christian philosophers if anyone's interested in the history of of christianity and how they perceive uh, and, and help christians have, have traditionally perceived the universe this book is a very good guide because it shows how the whole i mean the the church used to have a philosophical problem and that was if god had created a universe full of inhabited planets which what people actually thought in medieval times um did jesus christ die on every one of those planets did did god sacrifice mm -hmm. his only son on every planet or are we living in a universe full of sinners if not um did uh, did uh, the original sin happen everywhere or maybe nowhere apart from our own planet it's it's a, it's a massive problem and then lots of philosophers said well maybe jesus uh, just traveled from one planet to the next uh, spreading spreading news about about god and, and religion and in a sense that turns him into a space traveler if he did that he would be right. hopping from galaxy to galaxy so i mean it's interesting looking back at medieval books and how they envisioned um this kind of thing alien worlds and uh, contact between them and, and so on but then we only really find stories uh, or claims of contact with aliens in the 19th century um, from the very beginning of the 19th century, uh, we, we begin to see how people could uh, believe in, in extraterrestrials visiting the Earth, bringing technology with them, bringing learning with them, and so on, which is an idea that we find again in the 1950s in the contactee movement. And um, then it was around nine, uh, 1857 that the first story about uh, a UFO was published and interpreted as extraterrestrial visitors. Uh, so, I mean, it's such a vast subject. And I think my book, Alien Artifacts, is the only uh, real guide to it. Uh, that's ever been published and and that's why everyone's encouraging me to to publish the next ones as quickly as possible they want to know how it so how uh, it all happened the alien artifacts is from antiquity to 1880 and your other books will cover other things from 1880 on is that correct or is it will it revisit those that era yeah well my original plan was for the for alien artifacts too to um to cover from 1880 to 1896 which would be the beginning of the great airship wave in north america when when people saw mysterious airships all over the the united states um and the the, the thing is that uh, so many people have written to me with with their own findings um about uh, uh, strange alien visits and encounters and and what have you from the 1860s 1870s that i'm gonna have to take a step back i think and um, oh wow you know and add a few add a few things from from previous decades uh, so this is the great thing about publishing through through amazon um it gives authors a lot of freedom to to play around with their manuscript to to make a revised version yes uh, to update it and so on um that's why i think the next few books will be published through amazon too well it yeah it's it, it's it's given people like authors people like you and mike and i i think such a such an advantage and especially in such an ever-changing field like this one i mean even in the last oh my gosh six months there has been so much that's that's just poured into into the the, the public's eye and uh, mike and i were, were talking about this uh, 
just before you got here, Chris, about the idea of people seem to be, even as this stuff is being introduced and they're making these gigantic claims like the uh, the hearings, the, the Mexican hearings, and we see the, the Congress, the congressional hearings and so on and so forth. And it seems like, at least to us, like people are becoming fatigued of the the claims that are coming out because there's they're not hitting the news it's not causing the uproar that it did in the in the 50s it, you know it's almost like people are, are passing this by do you, do you think that maybe like there's there's sort of a gut instinct that people know that something's not right with some of this stuff yeah definitely and i mean on uh, on the one hand uh, we have the fact that every generation has its equivalent of the idea that the government is just about to tell us right. all, yeah. all, all of its dark secrets. You know, I mean, um, if you if you look at old UFO bulletins, magazines from the 1940s onwards, it seems that the government's always just about to tell us some some terrible truth. They're not sure if we can handle. Yeah. And it seems that every five or six years, someone comes out with a, a new book. Um, who you know, some some important person, some important military man or or politician, about um, his experience with alien bodies or Roswell or uh, they they know the truth about something or other, and the, the, these books are published, or these these public figures become famous for ten minutes, and then everyone forgets about it and, and moves on and waits till the next one does exactly the same thing again. And I think that uh, if you if you look at this from a historical perspective, you can't really take it seriously anymore. Yeah. Um, mm. The other day, I, I found a, an article uh, from, I believe it was 1883 or 1873, which said that uh, they were sure that at any, any, at any moment now, uh, humanity was going to experience a massive revelation about our space brothers. And that was 1873. Sure. Wow. Yeah. Um, we're, we're always on the verge of, of this thing and people say, can't you feel it? Can't you sense that we're, it's just about to happen? It doesn't happen. I mean, a hundred years later, 150 years later, we're still waiting. And uh, It's yeah. like cult figures saying the world is going to end at this particular day and right. then when it doesn't, they, they're, oh, well, we misread the signs. and. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like the uh, the the Seventh Day Adventists uh, mm -hmm. uh, did that. I mean, it's always like uh, you know, Jesus Christ is just about to arrive. Or sell all your possessions. Uh, uh, you know, it's going to be the fourteenth of October or whatever. And then when that date comes along, they say, "Oh, it's been changed, uh, divinely changed in the schedule. We have to wait another six months." And yeah, it's 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 just a, a feeling people have. It's it's a little bit like conspiracy theories, and I'm not saying that conspiracy theories are all are all nonsense. It's possible um, that many are totally true in the UFO world. They are in other in other areas of life, but uh, I mean the earliest conspiracy theory that I've found is from the 1860s, uh, related to you know, UFOs and and whatever. So. It's something that we we've, we've been dragging with us for years. They've always been around. I, I grew up in the seventies and eighties with uh, all the uh, uh, JFK assassination conspiracy theories that were happening then. You know, it was it's it's like you say. Uh, what is it that you think is driving that? Is it you know times are tough and people are looking for something to save them? Is is that what this is? I think that it's the idea that something so big and so important can't have have gone unnoticed by the big powers that be, for example, the governments and the mm -hmm. and, and scientific boards and so on. So the only conclusion is that as governments have such a lot of money behind them, they must have already reached conclusions that we mere mortals could not do with our own money and, and, and resources. So um, there's a feeling that they must have information that we don't have. They must have knowledge. They must have whatever. And uh, I think that that's a feeling that we've always had, that uh, the governments or 
monarchies or politicians and presidents, etc., must have secrets that the rest of us don't have access to. And that must be um, uh, just a, a very normal feeling. And I'm sure that if we look at other areas of history, if we could interview Roman soldiers, we'd probably hear that you know, them saying, well, I'm sure the emperor knows exactly what's going, what's going on. I'm, I'm sure that he has information that we do not have as mere soldiers. And they would have been right, of course, too. So it's not an unnatural feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes, that, it makes so much sense. And I'm just revisiting a, a quote from a fellow by the name of Dr. Brett Weinstein, who, uh, he's a biologist. And, uh, this quote caught me and I, I copied it down because I thought this was, it was just relevant for so many things going on in the world, especially this. And the quote is, and so the point is not really, are you a conspiracy theorist or are you not? The question is, are you any good at it? Are you good at being rigorous in the confusing landscape where collusion may be taking place? And it's not easy because, frankly, the nature of conspiracy is to create a phony story, which then causes Occam's razor to trigger artificially. So how do you tell the difference between an organically simple explanation for something and a phony baloney simple explanation that effectively <laughs> obscures the truth? That's the difficulty philosophically. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? I mean, how, how can yeah. we distinguish? It's, it's very Unless you're personally involved in whatever's going on, there is no mm -hmm. way. I mean, yeah. you know, whether whether Apple products become obsolete because it's programmed in, into into the Apple schedule or, or whatever, um, it's it's all sounds sounds so realistic too and and likely and uh, it can't all be true. So you know, there must be a lot of it that isn't true. And I'm I'm pretty sure that that uh, again the powers that be, whoever they are, have manipulated us many times in the past because they know that we'll we'll reach that conclusion or either on our own or with a little bit of prodding. Uh, so um, I suppose it's a kind of uh, propagandist machine without actually mm -hmm. making propaganda. I'm not sure. But um, the, the, the case I have, for example, from the 1860s was an Australian it happened in Australia. It was, um, I believe he was Welsh or Irish, an, an engineer in a place called Parramatta in Australia. He had a vision. He was an engineer, very important engineer called William Birmingham, Frederick Birmingham, Frederick William Birmingham. And he, he, he had a vision of an airship that landed just outside his house. And, uh, or he had a vision or he experienced it or dreamt it, whatever happened. And then he felt that he was being floated through the air he he landed inside this vehicle there was a strange being that showed him uh, the workings of it even showed him um, a mathematical formula which he had to remember and then this guy probably woke up in his bed or it was the next day and then he spent decades trying to rebuild the 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 flying machine um from from his vision and um, he believed he'd successfully uh, designed it. And he went from Australia to North America and tried to get uh, financial backing, tried to get people interested. No one was particularly interested. But apart from that, he, he was fired from his, from his job by Queen Victoria's government. Uh, and then he reached the conclusion that it was Queen Victoria's government who'd fired him from this job to stop his his blueprints for a flying machine to fall into enemy hands. So this is a conspiracy theory because he thought that the British government was against him and had put all these obstacles in his way just to stop him from ever, ever commercializing this idea. Um, and I mean, it's just something that's been with us all this time. And of course, I'm, I'm sure that that wasn't the case. I don't think that Queen Victoria had any idea that this man even existed. Uh, mm. But uh, it's just a natural human instinct to, to believe that, um, that authorities uh, have more information and secrets than we do. And of course they do, but it doesn't mean they're right about them. It doesn't mean they have the, the secrets we'd like them to have. Yeah, of course. What what do you think at, at the end of all of this? And because you've you've delved into this to such a incredible degree, what do you think people are really seeing? 
I don't know. I don't know what I saw. Um, on the 6th of April 1996, I had my ufo sighting i was in a small village in in spain called talarubias and i saw a, an orange rectangular luminous thing in the sky i was with a group of people i think there were six or seven of us and we were all looking at it and it didn't make any sense and uh people were like inventing all kinds of explanations they were saying oh that's a satellite and of course satellites didn't look like that oh that's just a secret aircraft but it, they wouldn't have been experimenting with a weird objects like that over this particular area mm -hmm. in spain sure um so i saw something and i can't explain it and i've looked for an answer for it uh i don't know i don't know i just hope they're not here to eat us uh, <laughs> right <you know. laughs> Well, the, uh, according to Joe Simonton from April 18th, 1961, they're here to feed us pancakes. You're probably aware of that story. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and maybe they've, maybe they've achieved their, their goal. I don't know. Maybe something they're yeah. eating all the time they invented it. Who knows? But uh... Perhaps. Well, the IHOPs aren't doing very well in Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> I feel sort of uncomfortable to say they or refer to the intelligences sure. or whatever, because um, I think that that would be to anthropomorphize something that might yeah. not be crude or, or, or manned or, or full of people in any sense. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. we, we, we don't know what's inside these uh, objects, or even if they're objects at all half the time. And um, it sort of depends to what extent you believe uh, eyewitness testimony and whether they really were eyewitnesses. I mean, it's such a confusing area. Uh, right. Um, and and the more we have mobile phones and the more connected we all are, the the fewer close encounters seem to seem to happen. So. Um, well, that's because they they screw with the technology and oh, no yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. 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 Exactly. I mean, this is this is it. I mean. Uh, I mean, at what point do do people start saying, "Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's what's happening after all." I mean, the the, the thing is, what I what what I do in in um, in my book sources, I point out the fact that although we we all associate um, UFOs with with flying discs, and we're all aware that UFOs have existed for thousands of years. Flying discs have had a very short history, but so short. I, I compare it, I believe, to the career of the Rolling Stones because it's just a few decades. That's all, it, that's all it's been. It was the 1940s, 1950s, and 60s. But then when we get into the, the 80s, uh, late 70s, 80s, it's not, it's not really about discs anymore. It's all kinds of shapes, all kinds of, of weird phenomena were happening. But we still drag the the image of a of a disc, you know, with us, and um, I don't know. It's such a it's such a complex thing. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, I, it reminds me actually of uh, the, the course that I, I was taking a bunch of uh, academics and and myself in once a year we we get together for this amazing course called the Paramook. And uh, it's it's run by the Parapsychology Foundation, and uh, basically all the all the minds would come and get together and and talk about research and the latest research and stuff. And the one fellow, and his his name escapes me right now, but he his area of research was abductions and uh, and sleep paralysis. And I, what I found so interesting about his research and what he he brought to light was that the descriptions of the the aliens and the, the creatures themselves, you'd think that they would be very universal and they weren't. They were very culturally influenced and culturally isolated, where in the West we had the greys. In South America, people were reporting sort of more animal-looking creatures and uh, and which was very much in touch with, with the, the spirituality of, of that area. Uh, and Europe, you kind of had something different. And I thought that was just really, really interesting. And it just, as we're talking about this idea of the flying saucer and the, the, the shape and how it's, it's being influenced in these certain ways, that c keeps coming back to me, is that so much of this is, seems to have this, you know, this, this interpretation or that we're, we're dealing the interpretation through our own perceptions to, to some degree. And it's so important, I think, that, that we recognize how much 
of what we are perceiving is is so influenced by by you know where where we live where we're where we're at culturally spiritually you know all of these things it's it's amazing how it's just all integrated but it's something i think everybody needs to be aware of yeah and uh, i mean apart from that um People make a big effort to show that that UFOs have always been with us. Um, it's 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 hard to know exactly why that's such a, an obsession. But if you go on the internet and you look for UFOs, ancient history, you'll find a lot of very very fake uh, pictures of sculptures, Egyptian hieroglyphics, Mayan hieroglyphics, and so on, um, showing uh, sources and and uh, greys. Uh, as if they've always been with us for some reason. But in actual fact, when you start, and this is, this is when I start losing friends in this field. And right. This is where I, where I have to start looking through the window and I'm thinking, I don't know, what are they going to do to me? Yeah. But um, when we look at sources, we find that, it, I mean, it was like 30, maybe 40 years that they were dominant in the field. They didn't exist before 1947. Uh, well, there are very few cases, um, and very few cases these days too, and that's not me saying that, that's the data. Um, and then greys only started appearing in the very early 1980s, and up before that, they, they weren't there at all. Um, yeah, they were grey-skinned uh, creatures, plus... All, all kinds of colors. Um, there were there were tall and, and dwarfish and thin and fat creatures, but um, you didn't find the the exact combination of of dwarfish with with gray skin and giant eyes until the the 1980s. But people make a massive effort to to make sort of AI generated pictures or just mm. sculptures or whatever showing discs and grays in antiquity. And that's something that I say in the book. Um, I say, well, look, let's let's. I, I'm not saying that UFOs don't exist. I'm not saying that weird creatures don't exist. But let's just step back and and think about what we're really saying here. Is this actually true, or are we just falling victims to our own uh, culture? And um, yeah, I mean. That that's it. I mean, but when, when I tell people about about the greys not really existing more than forty years ago, they they they're not very happy about it. And if I say that flying saucers didn't really exist before nineteen forty seven, people start switching off. And that's why I had to write this book. I knew not a lot of people were going to read it actually, um, because the moment I start talking about it in an interview, they're going to say, "Oh, that's not true." You know, if that can't be true, yeah. and they're not going to read it. But you just need to face this kind of information sometimes. You know. Well, I just ordered it, so I am definitely going to read it. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I this is the conversation that I want to have. I don't want to have the conversation uh, with people who are staunch believers in something and just say, I know it's this, and there's no yeah. room for you to tell me anything else other than these are uh, beings from reticuli, blah, 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 and they're fly in flying saucers. That's mm -hmm. that's all I want to hear. And to me, that... that makes the conversation impossible. I mean, how are we going to have a conversation about what these things are if you already believe that they are something that, that perhaps that, they're yeah. not? Exactly. I mean, if we were zoologists or botanists or, you know, or, or just cooks or I don't know, um, it, it would, it would, it should make us feel ashamed to say we already know what these things are, even if we don't have one in the laboratory. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, to reach these these conclusions so quickly would be a shameful thing in any other uh, study. But in, in ufology, it seems that the belief exists first, and then they just look for the facts after that. Right, yeah. Back that up. And they will find them, because there'll be other people who believe the same things as them, and they'll end up reading imaginative narratives that... Um, you know that aren't really really true at all. So uh, it's, for example, um, the the topic of uh, ancient aliens, or mm -hmm. when I was yeah. younger it was called ancient astronauts, but they don't yes. say that these days. Um, that that's something that's always interested me. When I got into this field, I I was about thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, and I I became a member of the Ancient Astronaut Society, which is in Illinois. 
and it was run by uh, Eric von Daniken's uh, lawyer at the time, Gene Phillips. <laughs> I was yeah, just going to invoke remember? his name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, he 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 died a few years ago. Well, several years ago now, I, I imagine. Uh, but um, I, I became very interested in this in this topic, and. I, I believed, as everybody else did, that this is this was something that that had been invented in the mid twentieth century because I'd, as we'd become more technological and aware of the universe, we were starting to reinterpret ancient legends with space age eyes or, or whatever, and uh, it all made lots of sense. But then over the years, um, I pieced together the origins of the ancient astronaut theory, and it comes from 1823. I know the name of the man who invented it, the reason how he reached that conclusion. Uh, I know the evidence he used, and I know the date. I could probably even give them the month and the year. I mean, everything. Um, it, it comes from the year 1823, which means that this is the 200th anniversary of the ancient astronaut hypothesis. Um, I don't know if we should go out and celebrate, but this is, <laughs> you know, uh, he was a, um, a French author called, uh, uh Chabrier who, who wrote, um, a book that tried to explain some rocks that he'd found in Germany during one of his uh, business trips there. And, um, at that time, people were talking about the asteroids that had been discovered in the, in, in, in the, like the, over the, the decade, the last decade of that, in, in that period. And, uh, many people had reached the conclusion that the asteroids had been part of an inhabited planet. And the reason that they thought that it had been inhabited was that why would God destroy a planet unless it had been full of sinners. So there oh, were lots of people yeah. thinking that that uh, a planet had been destroyed, uh, creating the asteroid belt, and if God had allowed that to happen, he must have had a really good reason for it. Anyway, um, this guy thought that maybe these strange rocks that looked out of place had come from uh, that exploded planet. And then he said, well, if these rocks have reached Earth, maybe remnants of the civilization on that planet ha have also come here, have also fallen here. And then he started thinking, well, that explains a lot of our mythology. It explains perhaps how um, the Egyptians uh, got their civilization and, and so on and so forth. He reached the conclusion that um, our ancestors had either been or been visited by or come into contact with extraterrestrials from this um, forgotten planet um, that had become the asteroids. And this idea became very popular over the next few decades. And by the 1860s, 1880s, uh, writers were already talking about um, the pyramids having been designed or built by um, people from other planets. The Easter Island statues were, were tied in with this too. And we're talking about a hundred years before von Daniken wrote about it. Um, and that's the origin of the ancient alien theory. And th this, this is actually uh, several chapters in my book, Alien Artifacts. Um, some of the the discoveries that I've made and I've published, I mean, people read them and they write to me and they say, oh my God, I've been, I've been talking about ancient aliens all my life and right. I had no idea. In 1870, this guy called Dufresne in, in, in Paris, the French were very interested in this theory, uh, as, as they were in North America too. Uh, a guy called Dufresne made a presentation to a um, very important intellectual group in, in Paris saying that he believed that the continent of Australia had fallen from space as an asteroid and landed in the Pacific Ocean. Ah. And, that, and that would explain why the Aborigines are so weird, he said, because oh, uh, <laughs> oh, no. they were extraterrestrials. That would explain why there were koalas and kangaroos and so on, because 
um, it wasn't. They're they're not from this planet. They're all alien species. Uh, um, uh -huh. He also said that because no one's come to collect this planet, no one's come to claim it as if it were a, a, a tennis ball in someone's backyard. We could um, colonize <laughs> it and take it for ourselves. Oh jeez. Um, therefore, justifying the idea of uh, of the white. Of, of, of the white race taking this planet from the original uh, native inhabitants and probably turning them into, into slaves. Wow. Uh, Yikes. So, you know, <laughs> 1870. Yeah. The mental gymnastics are incredible. <laughs> well, I could talk to you all day about this, Chris. <laughs> yeah, truly. This is this has been absolutely amazing, and I I really hate the fact that we have to wrap it up, but it's uh, this is is so phenomenal, and I feel like I have had about ten years education in the last hour. Thank you so much for this. Um, this is phenomenal, and we'd absolutely love to have you back to keep this conversation going because I, I know for a fact that if if we've never heard it, I think a lot of other people haven't heard it either, and and please everybody go out and just buy Chris's books because they're, they're really fantastic. And Chris, where can people get your books and find you? Because I know you're going to get a lot of calls after this. Right. So um, I'm, I'm publishing them through, through Amazon. I'm keeping the price as low as I can too, because I'm more interested in people reading this than, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't make a living from this, um, which is an important difference. People who make a living from this um, end up saying all kinds of absurd right. nonsense sure. just to sell, sell books or whatever it is. You know, and that's that's not what I do. So anyway, um, if they look for me on on Amazon, um, they look for alien artifacts and sources. Those are the first two books in my re-examination of the history of ufology and then very soon there'll be uh several more i'm also going to i i'm i'm the founder and director of a group called magonia exchange which has been operating since uh, april 2003 and we've collected more than 40 or 50,000 cuttings from newspapers uh the uh, stories completely forgotten about i mean cases that no one's ever heard of um it's time to to share them so i'm, I'm i want to um start a kind of uh, a fortean source book series um just start sharing everything that we've collected over the years with my comments and observations and so on so if anyone wants to join that group Mag just just put in google magonia exchange uh, and then put uh, i think it's io which is the name of the of the Mm -hmm. the, the company that has has our group in it and they'll they'll they'll, they'll find the the address very quickly um and then if anyone wants to find me on on facebook or wherever you know the usual places uh, they can do that too my email is always at the back of my books so if anyone's interested in in buying one you know just buy one read it return it to amazon they'll never know steal it whatever you want <laughs> I just I just want people to 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 read it that's all and and to see you know something real for a change about where all this has come from. It is oh. so fascinating. Thank you so much Chris. We really appreciate this. Thank you very much for having me. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah th i mean that interview went to places that i wasn't expecting and it was i i'm so glad we we continually have these guests on who you know other guests suggest to us because i wouldn't have known about this guy i went right out and ordered uh, chris's book saucers as soon as we had this while we were having the conversation i ordered the book yeah it, it's mind-blowing and as i say i'm Gosh, I'm walking away from this interview really re-examining what my, I guess, my my own paradigms and ideas are about what I, th just common things, you know, mm -hmm. things that I think are so common, information that I think is just, you know, is just true by default. Mm -hmm. I, I'm questioning a lot. Which is good. I think that's that's kind of the key for learning is questioning. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the minute you stop questioning, we're kind of done for. Oh, well, totally. And what's what's great to me about what we just heard is 
the fact that this really is a cautionary tale because if we apply what happened here with Kenneth Arnold and uh, the the sightings and and how these different perceptions have been changed and altered over the years, especially in the case of Kenneth Arnold, where it was one misprint mm-hmm. in a media article, and the you know the media grabs it, takes hold of it, off it goes, and now all of a sudden everybody thinks it's true, and that to me is very it's very very telling and i think it's is a cautionary tale for what we know now in in terms of what we're taking in what we're reading all of that kind of a thing yeah totally i mean i'm still waiting for my alien pancakes but you know oh uh, you still haven't got your pancakes <laughs> no no aliens have come and offered me buckwheat pancakes yet i'm right. still like come on it's time it's like mike for needs some order. buckwheat pancakes <laughs> It's like waiting for your Hogwarts letter. Oh yeah, you know, you well, know? that's not going to happen either. So. <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm so fascinated by this subject because, as I say, I'm leaving this conversation more aware of the world and what I'm what I'm listening to, and I'm finding myself going back on just information in parapsychology and even in just day to day fact about where I think things come from and actually mm-hmm. re-examining a lot of things. Like I'm, yeah, my, my brain is, is exploding right now. You can't hear it, but it is. I heard it. It made, it made a sound like a, like See, just a little. It's a sensitive microphone. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you for joining us on this eerie expedition, dear listeners. I guess this one would be more otherworldly. But, you know, it, it, oh, it definitely is. And remember, the line between the natural and the supernatural is often a thin one, if there is one at all. Right. Next time, stay curious, friends. Yeah. Supernatural Circumstances is a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast Podcast Network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can learn more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and learn more about me, Mike Brown, and listen to my show, Dark Poutine, at DarkPoutine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com.